we're talking about gestures, right? Save it for after we mess up the introduction. I am in that kind of mood tonight. <laughs> a little bit of humming right there, but that, that was probably Alex. <laughs> He's the hummingbird. <laughs> oh my God, I just set that up right. Because anytime someone says they want to become an interpreter, people gather around and go, what is going on in your head? Because no one has a clue what goes on in interpreters' heads. But that's science. <laughs> that's how it is. <laughs> Everywhere, and even if people have exactly the same background. When you have a PhD in interpreting, almost whatever question someone asks you about interpreting, your answer is, mm, I have no idea. How am I supposed to know all I did was a PhD in that subject? I thought, wow. Off we go. Here we go. Welcome to the Troublesome Terps, the podcast about things that keep interpreters up at night, excluding crying children, roadworks outside your bedroom window, and a dodgy takeaway the night before. Believe it or not, this is episode 24, and it is my pleasure to welcome back my co-hosts and co-equal troublemakers. <laughs> First off, he's apparently inimitable, indomitable, unshaven, and exceedingly knowledgeable. It's Alexander Drexel. Alex, welcome. Thank you, Alex. And hi, everyone. Just to uh, let people know what's going on there. So this quote, the inimitable and so on, comes from Kevin Quirk, who's currently the president of FIT. So I don't know if he's listening to the show. I, I surely hope so. So quick shout out to uh, Kevin and thanks for providing me with a nice Twitter bio. <laughs> see, see I, I'm more interested in his German cheese making brother, Kevin Quirk. <laughs> oh, stop <laughs> it. <laughs> that was... <laughs> No, no, no. That's that's his brother who's into ducks, which is Kevin Quack. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God! I just set that up right. Oh God. Okay. Oh, and as you can, of course, tell we have with us the Prince of Pithy Puns, our very own Jonathan Downey. Jonathan, how are you? I, I'm doing very well. Very, very well. Earlier today, I thought I would not make it because I had a really bad broadband error, which is English for "Oh my goodness, nothing is working." <laughs> <laughs> so, well, thank God so it's you, working you, now. You know, I, I'm just thinking it felt like I was losing contact with the outside world. That's a perfect rehearsal for Brexit. Oh, <laughs> the B word. So we've got the Brexit shout out down. Now all we need to do is mention GDPR in context and we're good for the show. I was just going to say GDPR is missing, but we'll get there. <laughs> it, it, it's okay. We can't mention GDPR because we're not allowed to talk about GDPR. That's, yeah. Because that'd be breaching GDPR. Probably, but we can always send out consent forms. But let's talk about that later. Now, <laughs> nice. It's like going back to school. <laughs> But with all of that out of the way, once again, we have a fabulous guest on our show. She is a lecturer and research associate in applied linguistics at Zurich University of Applied Sciences. Please welcome to our show, Caroline Lear. Caroline, welcome. Thank you. Hi. Thanks for the invitation. It's great to have you. <laughs> nice to be with you. <laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. <laughs> Yeah, we're actually quite uh, we're quite honoured to have you because you're a bit of a radio celebrity now, <laughs> uh, because you were on on the famous German broadcast at Deutschlandfunk a couple of weeks ago talking about um, machine translation, if I remember correctly. Exactly. Yeah, talking to um, uh, experts on uh, in, in on artificial intelligence and trying to explain them why we need humans when we translate and when we interpret. Yeah, exactly. That's that was my job, yeah, and I was very honoured to be able to. 
um, to represent the community. And you did a good job, if I may say so. Yes. And uh, Thank it, you. it's also a very good topic because of, it was the very first topic that we had on the show in, in episode one, way back when. Um, and just the other day, Jonathan, we had a nice uh, online discussion going on Twitter, right, about uh, machine versus human or maybe machine with human. Well, see, this is the thing because I was at this UT conference and on a, pa a very learned, excellent panel we had, my former senior PhD supervisor, Professor Graham Turner. So it was a real challenge for me that Graham said that he reckoned that they were training perhaps a last generation of interpreters. And after that, of course, you know, of course, I live tweeted that. And there was a really nice discussion on Twitter. And I've actually realized that the answer to why we need human interpreters is that if there weren't any human interpreters, the coffee would not get drunk. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> good point. Very important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Another um, um, another thing that, um, that that I also um, that I mentioned already and which is which is part of, of my research is uh, is emotions. Uh, humans humans have emotions. Human interpreters have emotions, and emotions are very important uh, in in the message and in communication. And so far, we we can hardly imagine how how machines should ever be able to transfer emotions and um, and to communicate them properly. Mm -hmm. Interesting. But but before we get ahead of ourselves, I just wanted to mention real quickly how we came across you, Caroline. Um, I think the first time we met. Um, fittingly was at a suti conference or the suti forum as it uh, used to I be i think so yeah. yeah i think it was yeah. a couple of years ago um, yeah. and it was always in geneva and i think this this year they're starting a new format so um this time it was in in, in edinburgh um but and so we didn't meet so yeah. we didn't meet which is a shame but <laughs> at least we get to meet uh, online tonight which is good as well yeah Yeah, um, but again, before before we jump into the topic, can you give our listeners a little idea of how you've been coming into the profession of interpreting and, and how you became a, a researcher a bit later on? So, yeah, actually, that may be very disappointing. I'm not a trained interpreter. <laughs> I studied uh, I studied in Geneva where we met, used to meet, uh, but I studied translation. And when I, that's how I started off. And then I am... Um, Uh, when writing my master thesis, I became quite interested in, uh, in in the brain and in cognition and in the processes that are going on in the bilingual brain. And um, so uh, after after finishing my translation degree, uh, what I did was I started a PhD uh, and an interdisciplinary PhD with a psychologist working on um, uh, yeah how how emotion influences. Uh, translation processes mm. and uh, and then did my my whole um, doctoral training in psychology and then did my postdoc once I had written this this um, uh, my dissertation year, years many years later <laughs> when, when I started my postdoc um, uh, did my postdoc in London uh, at uh, at UCL and then did my postdoc in uh, in a psychology department in a research group um uh with psychologists working on language being interested in language but um uh, con i continue to work on on translation and then also interpreting processes which are very different but for research purposes have certain things in common so uh the last um the last two years now in Zurich, i've started my job my new job in zurich in february and before the two years before what i what i did was i tried to explain to psychologists and neuroscientists how interesting 
um, interpreting processes are and why they are a very interesting research topic. Yeah. yeah. Wow, so it sounds like um, the emotional side of interpreting, to put it that way, ha has been on your mind for, for quite a while then. For quite a while, oh yeah, <laughs> in a very intense, in a very intense way. And, and um, I, I thought about it, yeah, a lot. <laughs> yeah, and from many different perspectives. And, um, and we also uh, started a study with interpreters, which is still running, um, to examine how emotions influence performance in the booth yeah that's really interesting for me because you know i finished my phd two years ago and the impression that i was given at a lot of conferences was that a lot of people in the cognitive side of interpreting research preferred um data sets without emotion and without necessarily things that would trigger anything but um, language comprehension and cognition. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so it, it's good to see, because especially with you talking about emotion in the booth, that's a very different way of talking about cognition research than most people are used to, because most cognition research is in some kind of simulated environment that they try to keep clean from, you know, they would tend not to use emotional content. They tend to prefer technical content because then you can trace numbers and terminology and things. What reaction have you had from the people in the rest of the cognition side of interpreting to this idea of deliberately studying the way that emotion affects our thinking in the booth? Um, yeah, you, you, uh, thank you. Thank you for, for that comment. You're, you're absolutely right. That's how, how um, cognitive science and brain research actually um, began, right? By seeing the, um, the human brain as a computer, comparing it to a computer, a rational um, information processing device. And uh, the, the person I did my PhD with, Klaus Scherer, who, um, who was a, a professor of psychology at the University of Geneva, was one of the persons uh, in, in psychology who said, look, that's not the way human beings work. What, what really, one of the things that makes us humans humans is that that we have emotions but that was a long long battle to convince people to start studying emotions and and, and he was one of them i'm very i'm very proud to have worked with him but it, it took a long time to raise this awareness and also to make it um to make it acceptable among professionals say so yes emotions are part of performance for a long time emotions were something that were considered to be um actually non non-professional uh, and um, so, um, so you were right. It was a long battle. Once I started, once I start, began my research, uh, I was rather welcomed uh, with this topic. And many people finally saying, "Oh, finally, someone uh, starts works on emotions, and, and someone does it." But for other researchers, it took a long, long time to get accepted with this topic, and and to also to find the, the methodological means to actually study emotions. Yeah. Well, that, that is a challenge because I'm thinking of um, cognitive researchers like Killian Sieber. Um, and I recently asked him a question because I realized that there's a big gap between what we know of interpreter cognition and what we know of interpreter sociology. Um, the You know, you have Anthony Pym talking about the contextualist versus the cognitivists. Um, and I asked him about, you know, has there been any research on interpreter decision-making in context, and his email was basically like, well, we don't have a method. I mean, it seems like if you're studying emotion, that's another step towards understanding how the results that we've found in the laboratory might 
actually apply to real life where there's always going to be some kind of emotion, whether it's boredom, sadness, um, anger at the speaker talking for 15 minutes and saying nothing. You know, there's always some kind of emotion going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We always have some kind of emotion. Yeah, I agree. Some kind of, maybe not some kind of emotion, but some kind of feeling. Yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. even if it's just, I'm dying for another piece of chocolate. (laughs) Sorry, if I can just jump in right there, because you just made a difference there, Caroline, between feeling and emotion. Maybe, can you just explain that for a second, what what the difference is? So, yeah, in in research, um, an emotion is actually an an episode, uh, something that is triggered by a stimulus and that is quite okay. quite intense. So an emotion starts with a cognitive evaluation of a situation, uh, of uh, yeah, of a stimulus, which can be um, an object, it can be a person, it can be a reaction uh, from someone, and we evaluate uh, what what we what we perceive. And the way we evaluate it then leads to the emotion, and that's very subjective. Because so that people who who see the same. Um, have different emotions because they evaluate them and they evaluate what they what they see in, mm. in a different way, and and this triggers the emotion and um, and then the emotion consists of different in, in in research as this is very complex we have tried to divide it into components um, we um, uh, we have a physiological reaction something like uh, uh, sweating or mm. feel our heart beating. Um, then uh, we have, we might have a motor expression. For example, we may smile, um, or we have, we adapt our posture um, when we are proud. We, you can, you may see that, um, uh, and and we may have action tendencies. Um, one a very um, survival related one, which comes from evolution. That's how emotions have developed through the mm. evolution of the human race. It's fleeing when we are afraid. Um, that was relevant um, when when we had to do with lions. <laughs> the whole <fight laughs> that of is less relevant yeah. today, but it's still there. It's it's still there that we're trying to avoid things that have have a negative impact on us. Um, and then also emotions influence, and that's probably most interesting for for performance in professional profession and in, in professional um, uh, life today. Um, emotions influence the way we process and can influence the way we process information and they can uh, help us to process information or they can make it more difficult. And um, just to, to finish this, this idea of the emotion, um, all these different components then give rise actually to what we then perceive as, as, um, as, as the subjective component, as, as the, uh, the feeling, right? This consists of all of those different things going on in our brain and also going on in our in our body. Yeah. That's 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 the definition of emotion, <laughs> and it took a long time to um, to to find it. But of course, feelings we can always we may not always be able to say we have a particular emotion, but we can always say do we feel better or less. Um, less good. So positive, negative is something we, we can always um, say. But usually emotions, how, how we imagine emotions um, is that those ones are particular episodes, quite intense ones, triggered by something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, that begs a question. It's a purely research question, but I'd imagine some emotions, if you want to research them, your ethical approvals must be pretty tricky. 
um, I was thinking of a time when I was interpreting at a, in a volunteer capacity and we were they were talking about a people group where their only um, economic activity was selling their mothers, wives and daughters into prostitution. Um, and I think I think anyone who thinks you can interpret that sort of thing and not feel an emotion has obviously never interpreted. But if, if you wanted to recreate that in the lab, I'd imagine your ethics board would have some very serious questions to ask you because you're then exposing someone to a very negative stimulus that could have a long-term effect on them. Of course, um, there are different arguments. One thing is that you, in the in the lab, maybe or in a study, you try to induce only mild emotions, um, or as we did with the with the conference interpreters, we compared positive emotions to a neutral um, group, uh, so that there would not be any any negative effects. Um, another argument, of course, could be um, to induce negative emotions. As you said, these emotions are actually occurring. That's part of your life. That's part of your profession. So why should you not be able to, to recreate at least some parts of it? But you're absolutely right. There's, there's, a, there's a very important ethical dimension. And um, to study really intense negative emotions, I think the only thing you can do is probably to, to do case studies. Um, if you have an interpreting, um, or if you have the recording of an interpreting that, that has already been done, like the one you have, you have just described and mentioned, you may be able to analyze it because it has happened, but you may not be able to do actually a, an experimental study with this intensity. Yeah, obviously, ethical aspects are very important. And maybe coming back to what you said before, the methods, um, are difficult, but one of the one of the um, the jobs of researchers is to constantly develop methods. And one thing, for example, that that will be very interesting for the future, and that is already uh, being used, is virtual reality, where we can recreate um, uh, a whole yeah a whole virtual reality, um, and that may that may open up new um, new possibilities also for studying interpreting. So meaning that you would use virtual reality, like a virtual reality goggles, for example, to, to create a situation and then put people into the situation and observe how they react to it or how they navigate the for situation? For yeah, that would be the concept that is already being done as well. Um, now I've also heard that uh, psychologists are using it to train people to um, get more get more used to speaking in public. Oh, okay. um, so um, I think that's, yeah, that... That remains to be explored, I think, how we can use this. Yeah, maybe also in training. Yeah. So one, one th thought that occurred to me earlier, maybe it's a bit late for this now in the discussion, but um, because you, you said you worked with um, researchers from other disciplines, for example, uh, from psychology. Yeah. Um, from psychology. Was that because that at least when I wrote my final thesis, there was still this sort of idea in the room that interpreting studies is not really research, um, so that it's not really a discipline on its own, or that it's more of a mixture of various disciplines, or I, I think that the euphemism would be that it's multidisciplinary. Um, was, was that ever an issue when you worked with those other, you know, with uh, psychologists, for example, or, or did they, well, I guess for lack of a better word, did they accept you as a, as a real researcher, if you know what I mean? Um, so. Yeah, of course. Why um, 
why why did it lack acceptance because it 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 started as a as a as a professional discipline right and the questions that people had were were linked to to practice and most of mm. these people in the beginning were not trained researchers and of course the idea was um to work with those people who are specialists in research in studying the brain and studying cognition and studying um, psychological processes yeah. uh, to get their expertise because they are doing nothing else. They are doing only that. And we are also <laughs> professionals. So we have to, we need, if, when we want to do research uh, on interpreting and translation is the same, we need a little bit of expertise in both, right? We need an access to both, to both worlds. Um, and, and yeah, absolutely. My idea was to work with those people um, to also, because we were talking about methodology, to benefit from, from their methodological knowledge because um, they have it. Uh, and also um, to make our discipline as a research discipline um, to, to, to make it, um, yeah, to, to improve its acceptance by showing that we can do research that perfectly fits um, the um, the requirements that that other larger also older disciplines um, have mm -hmm. um, and um, and and I also think that um, it has also benefits for the discipline being a study of uh, um, an, an object of scientific study uh, because it increases um, uh, yeah awareness of how complex these processes are mm -hmm. um and and you can show it scientifically you can show it uh with data and and people see what a complex process it is how interesting it is um and that was indeed a process i started with talking to the psychologists i started with um getting recommendations like yeah and then you can maybe replace some words because that's what it is all about, right? We replace some words and that's how we translate or interpret. Um, and when I, when I finally defended my thesis, uh, the situation was really different. And the psychologists, I had learned a lot from them and I think they had also understood much better what um, mediation between languages is, is about and how complex it is. Yeah. That sounds great, yeah. I mean, it does take me back a bit. Um... It's, it's always nice. Him. It's not always nice being being around another interpreting studies scholar, but it takes me back a bit because when interpreting studies first began, kind of in the sixties and seventies, my understanding was that there was a little bit of reticence from the, the profession at seeing all of these psychologists come in and wanting to basically wire us up to things and and see what happened. Um, it seems like the opposite has come now, where there's a realization that for interpreting to continue to thrive and for us to be able to teach a new generation of interpreters, we act, we need to understand what's going on in interpreting as well. Um, and I've been really pleased, on the one hand, I've been really pleased to see the acceptance of other disciplines in interpreting studies and even amongst professionals. On the other hand, it's still slightly annoys me a little bit that we don't really have any such thing as interpreting theory. Uh, we borrow from wherever we can find something, yeah. which means that we can we, you can get amazing results, and then you can get the occasion. Like I had one of my colleagues who tried to read um, one of the modern papers on interpreter cognition, and she was smart. She was doing a PhD as well, and she said, "I, I speak two languages, but obviously not the one that. Uh, sorry, I speak four languages, but obviously not the one that paper was written in." <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was a paper on interpreter cognition written in English. Yeah. And I'm like, and, yeah, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> 
and the problem was that it was too uh, what <clears throat> that it was too too, too com the, not not really relevant to interpret. Well, it, it was published in a very it was published in the top journal of interpreting, and the problem was that I think the person writing it assumed that everyone reading it would have an equal background in cognitive science as he did. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and if you don't understand, if, if you don't understand that actually sometimes you're talking about the same things but using different words, then you can get lost very, very quickly. So there's a really basic example. Sometimes you have to sit down and explain to people that, that when the cognitive scientists talk about EVS, they're talking about what, what most interpreters would call lag. And that's just then, yeah, yeah that, that's just a very simple example. But some interpreters, if you say "oh, ear voice span" or "EVS," they go, "Oh, you mean decalage?" <laughs> yeah, do you mean decalage? Are, <laughs> are you going to measure my head? <laughs> Those kind of things is that that's a really simple example, which shouldn't be very common now. But there, there, there is an issue with interpreting studies that you could have two people in the same field studying sometimes very similar things and just not understanding each other because they come from different backgrounds. But that's science. Yeah. <laughs> that's how it is yeah. <laughs> everywhere. And even if people are studying, exa have exactly the same backgrounds, yeah. they may give different labels to, to the same thing. Um, yes. that's, yeah. That is indeed one. Um, it, it's a general problem in science to find the right concepts, the right labels. Um, but also, especially when you work um, into when when the work is interdisciplinary, um, then you always have to renegotiate the vocabulary um, and to, um, to to explain sometimes what you mean. And and indeed, what what um, I think what what you're saying is very pertinent. That sometimes when when we describe the pr the brain, which is not easy, right? Sometimes things may get very abstract and and in, and in the end you're like okay but what does he actually mean by that um th that i think that's that's yeah that's just everyday business in in science and and that's what we also have to do to to always redefine yeah. and um and sometimes also conceptualize things in a way that is very abstract and but because then we can um um, yeah, then we have something we can then define maybe in more detail or we can work with as, as long as we don't know it better, right? Um, yeah, uh, but, but um, yeah, I understand what you mean. I've, I've, I've read many scientific papers and um, I, I had to read them more than once. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Part of me would long to see, an, in fact, a lot of me would like to love to see a uniting of the tribes. You know, I'm a a bit of a died in the world contextualist because I did my PhD in field research. Yeah. But then there's an understanding that even if you understand everything that's going on in the context, that doesn't fully explain what the interpreter's doing and vice versa. You could understand the interpreter's cognition perfectly and there could be some contextual trigger that you just haven't accounted for. Um, and yeah. it, it's, such, it's a lovely open problem that if anyone can um, join <laughs> the cognitivists and the uh, contextualists, they'd probably win some kind of prize. <laughs> well, yeah. I think yeah, that's that's probably the next step, you know, to bring those things together and and um, try to to um, create a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. But of course, that's not how you can start. Interpreting is quite a young discipline. Mm. It's not very old. It is, yeah. And then you um, you have to to um, to focus on particular aspects, 
And um, the more research there is, then the more we, we can bring them together and, and build a, um, yeah, a more, as you say, a more complete picture mm. um, of it. But I think, yeah, that may, that may take a bit of time because it is compared to other disciplines. It's, it's very young. Mm. This, this is the thing, you, when, you, when you have a PhD in interpreting, almost whatever question someone's asked you about interpreting, your answer is, mm, I have no idea. <laughs> or it depends. Yeah. Someone mentioned something on Twitter, which was actually basically my PhD question. And my answer was, how am I supposed to know all I did was a PhD in that subject? Of course, the more you dive into the subject, the more you realize how, how complex it is and how little you actually know. Yeah, and the less certainty yeah, yeah. you have. <laughs> yeah, so I started, yeah. I started my PhD with the theory and lots of clues. I ended it with very little theory and definitely no clue whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, that's, but, that's normal, I think, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, given all these, I guess, challenges or, or restraints, I mean, how... You told us that you were very interested in the topic. How did you then actually go about sort of studying it or, or researching it? Um, because it, it seems to be that it seems to me that it's it's a bit of an abstract topic. I think uh, emotions. As you said already. So, you so how did you or... approach it? Uh, emotions and um, the roles the role they play in uh, interpreting. It took me a long, long time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to, <laughs> to really find my hypothesis and to find something that both the uh, um, at the time the translators or now and the postdoc, uh, yeah, me and and what I thought would be relevant to the interpreters um, mm. and and the psychologists made made both sides happy. That that is a challenge indeed. So. Um, uh, how how did how do you go about studying emotions? Well, in the end, um, it's it's actually quite easy. You have this idea of what an emotion is, and then you start manipulating emotions. Uh, you try to induce emotions. <laughs> it sounds very in evil people. when you put it like that. Um, it it can be. It can be. <laughs> okay. But um, it it can be. Um, uh, definitely. But in this case, with the interpreters, it was actually I think quite nice um, because they. Um, they listened to music and they saw um, nice pictures and um, and yeah, we it it um, we did not go. Um, it, it was not more than that. But hmm. yeah, so you start manipulating emotions and then you try to um, assess what happens, how people react and how they perform. And uh, in our uh, in this case, what is be what the hypothesis that is behind my research was behind my PhD research and is also partly now behind this uh, study with the interpreters is mm. that positive emotions increase creativity and fluency, verbal fluency, uh, and um, and positive emotions help you to uh, process abstract concepts. Oh, okay, I need to eat a lot of chocolate the next time I interpret from an accountant then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. <laughs> but I mean, when you say you, you manipulate emotions, as I said, yeah. it sounds a bit evil. If I was just joking, but I mean, what what does it mean in the in the concrete? I mean, what what does it look like? Just for me to be able to imagine it. Yeah, what does it look like? So, um, uh, so one thing can be can be music and pictures. So people get um, audio input and visual input that has been um, pilot tested. So in, in this case, it was Mozart and, um, and and pictures of things that remind you of holidays and, uh, uh, and other nice things. But manipulating emotions in other contexts, in experimental contexts, can 
um, can also be that people do a task and they get a feedback okay. on that task. Uh, and this feedback is totally random. So it's either positive or it's negative, uh, independent of the performance you, you actually had on that task. Uh, that could be another manipulation. Um, uh, yeah, music is, is used quite a lot. Music is quite a strong, it's, yes. it's quite a powerful stimulus, emotional stimulus. I think everyone probably can, can confirm this intuitively. Um, so, um, which is it's too bad we can't listen to music in the booth. <laughs> yeah, it would help sometimes. It, 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 yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but I actually do have a colleague who listens to classical music right before. Like, you cannot talk to him before the interpretation because he says he need, yeah he needs the classical. Really? I don't know. It kind of gets him into the right mood, I guess. So, yeah. See, this is the other thing. When I have a conference that I'm feeling particularly nervous about, as a Christian, I will spend ten, fifteen minutes praying in tongues before it. <laughs> tongues. <laughs> yeah, li literally. So I'll pray in tongues before it, and I find that that for me helps get me into the, the mood and into the place. Um, and I was just thinking, you know, when you're talking about manipulating emotions, I thought that's called being a parent. <laughs> <laughs> or being a child. Um, it's interesting because your work reminds me, when I was writing my first book, I wrote a section on the importance of humour. Um, and I found a study where they gave people this really strange puzzle to do. I think I'll put it in the show notes. And they yeah. found that the only people who succeeded in completing this rather random puzzle about, you know, how do you attach a candle to a cork board or something, <laughs> the only people who, who completed it were the people who'd watched slapstick comedy beforehand. Right. Yeah, yeah but that's and exactly it. it. Yeah, and it exact, does seem yeah. like there's some kind of... So, like, before I write the book sometimes... I will go and write something really stupid or write some silly jokes or read some one-liners because I find there are certain things that automatically bring me into a creative place. I will uh, do some, have something funny going on, have some music on and mm -hmm. have a cup of tea on the table. And my brain, as soon as it sees those stimuli, goes, and now it's time to write. Yeah, and I'm sure for British people, the effect of humour is, is, and, is and magnified. Well. <laughs> it's even more important for the Brits. <laughs> it's even if, a better if, effect. If you, if you uh, lived with this weather, you would need a good sense of humour too. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, um, uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot when I, when I lived in Britain. Um, yeah, miss well, it you sometimes. didn't live in Scotland, you lived in London. <laughs> I lived in but London. I, I yeah. apologise yeah. profusely for that London. experience. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but the, London's motto should be the city that you go to when you're trying to go somewhere else. That was exactly my case. Yeah. So you know, yeah, like yeah. people say to me, "How much have you seen?" You know, you've I've lived in the UK almost all of my life, and they say, "How much of London have you seen?" And I say, "Gatwick, Heathrow, Heathrow. Kings Cross, yeah. Euston," and for some reason, every time I cross the road in, in London, I end up changing at Green Park Tube Station. It's really strange. It's the only city where you cannot cross the road without changing the tube. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> I've seen a lot more. And um, yeah, but uh, but it's, yeah, it's true. It was a kind of, um, it, it was a very, um, it was a wonderful period of my life, but it was a transitional <laughs> period. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> the amazing thing about researchers is, you know, as soon as you ask it, there was a joke in our department that the first thing that interpreting researchers ever learned about interpreting was interpreters aren't quite normal. And then, you know, when you get to higher levels, you realize that clients aren't normal either. <laughs> <laughs> and it's how much of um, 
because we had this question we were doing in our PhDs is how much did you find that the existing theory of you know cognition and how the brain worked how much did that apply easily to interpreting and how much did you go well we're going to need to change this a little bit I think actually interpreting it's it's some it's um it's it's a very important um object of study because what is happening now what what you've mentioned before these studies in the lab do not represent reality right and this is how we we had to start we had to 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 um to control um, um most of the things to be able to um to build knowledge on the brain but now what is happening is that psychologists cognitive scientists neuroscientists are realizing this is really really very far from reality most of the um most of the participants in the studies are students uh, the, the the entire environment when when we examine the, the processing of language that is that has not much to do with actual communication we don't communicate in words we communicate in sentences and discourse so interpreting um, and that's also what we what we saw in the study um, gives us a very a good example of realistic and very complex language processing. Um, in the brain, which is performed by experts. You're experts in what you're doing and you have built up automated processes, you have a certain routine, you can cope with the stress. Um, so, uh, or mostly, <laughs> um, so um, it, it's really a challenge to all those theories. And as you say, um, uh, it, they only partly apply to those tasks, which are, which, which, which are, um, are real tasks and, and one of the things that I did and one of the things that the psychologists uh, are or were interested in is to see, do these theories that we have from the lab actually apply to, to this task, to, to this realistic um, uh, language um, uh, task and, and to, to those professionals? And it seems they only partly do. And that, of course, means that we have to revise certain things. Yeah, Such, absolutely. Yeah. Can I ask you the, the horrible question that the contextualists always ask the cognitivists? Um, how realistic do you think controlled experiments mm, on interpreting question, can yeah. be, um, given, given that we know so much about the unpredictability of interpreting context? I know some people like Cynthia Roy, Cecilia Vadenshow have argued that the interpreting context is changing with each utterance. Um, how realistic can your controlled experiments be, given what we know about interpreting changing in context? Um, so what we did now, we work with interpreters in the booth. In their, in their, um, they were doing this study uh, in their lunch break. Oh. Uh, they were so kind to <laughs> sacrifice their lunch break for this study. Um, and um, so we, what you can do is to to make it as realistic as possible. Um, of course, as soon as people know that they are in a study, and this is what you have to inform them about the fact mm. that they are studied, as soon as this happens, something changes. But that's one of the things that science has to cope with. So um, this is, of course, a question that, that always occurs. How, how realistic uh, is it? Is it really, um, does it really um, represent a realistic context? And I think it partly does, and partly it doesn't. <laughs> but um, um, but I think that's how it is, and we can try to make it as as realistic as we think we can. Also, we, ha we also have to cope with certain constraints. I mean, those these people were giving me thirty minutes twice, 
and I was very grateful for that. But of course, I would I would love to to, to have them for three hours. <laughs> I could do plenty <laughs> of things, but they don't have the time, and I can very well understand that. So you have to cope with a lot of constraints that always are also constraints to this to thing being being uh, totally realistic. But we have to do our best, and, uh, as we always have to, you know. And being aware of these limitations, I think we always have to mention them. But I suppose one of the limitations is also that the students are not um, experienced interpreters, I would say. Do you bear that in mind? So those were now real, real interpreters, oh, okay. experienced interpreters. Very, very kind to let us in and let me in and let me into their, their world. Um, so uh, so that was great. Yeah. So, I mean, the, as far as I'm aware, the days of using students for cognitive interpreting work are basically finished apart from one or two deliberate examples like Elisabeth Tesselius work mm -hmm. on expertise when you're doing a cross-sectional comparison you need them. Um, it's interesting because I know in my thesis in the appendices because there was an incident that I didn't manage to get time to analyze in my thesis there was a really interesting incident that I was interviewing people about that happened before I got there and it was talking about interpreters dealing with the emotion of embarrassment and shock and it's interesting because um, within some of the field work that's been done in interpreting although it's not kind of the the variables aren't controlled there are quite a lot of case studies I know Andrew Clifford has a wonderful case studies of interpreters doing dealing with emotion medical interpreting and it, it the fact that we have these case studies from field work and we have these case studies from experiments makes me wonder whether there's work to be done to look at the commonalities between the two. Um, I would imagine that there would be more in common than there would be different. But the you know a good theorist would be more interested in the differences and the commonalities. I think. Um, yeah, of course. One one data collection is always one um, you know part in the um, one piece <laughs> in the puzzle, um, and uh, and. Yeah, of course, one object of study studied through different methods and different approaches. That's what we have to aim for so that we have different perspectives on it. And hopefully, as you say, um, evidence may be a little, at least to a certain extent, be converging. Um, and then we can draw some um, some some conclusions or our conclusions become then even more substance, substantial. Um, when when we can draw on other studies uh, that that have worked with different methodologies, uh, that's that's definitely what 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 we should aim for, and that's why we still need more studies on interpreting. <laughs> maybe talking about a, um, I hope it's a related topic. It's I have no idea how interpreting research works, so bear with me. Um, I, I think a lot of interpreters uh, are very intrigued by the concept of flow because that I, I, w I was reminded of that when you talked earlier about sort of how positive being in, in a good positive state emotional state can can help you with your performance yeah. have you yeah. come across that does, does that play a role at all in your research because it's also so elusive you know people um, some people talk about it that they've experienced it and then other people think oh this must be great but I've never had it in the booth um, yeah yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I must say, I, I have uh, come across it in my psychology classes, and I have always wondered if I have ever experienced <laughs> because it. Because it's not clear, right? I mean, yeah, and I, and I don't exactly. know if I, I ever have. Exactly the same manner. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a very interesting concept, um, and um, 
remains to be <laughs> okay. studied probably in, yeah. in interpreting <laughs> or people we must find people who have uh, who who are aware of having yeah. experienced it but um the concept um itself the the, the flow experience um yeah this it, it it there are some similarities with the theory that that is uh -huh. behind my research that that positive emotions increase your your cognitive fluency um that um uh, thinking is 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 faster it's it's easier uh, you can retrieve information easier you can uh, think more creatively that's that that's one approach to mm -hmm. to positive emotions that this one idea of positive emotions that that they can have this effect then of course emotional experience are, are very complex um uh and there, there's also another thing that's that's um, another another concept that's that is very relevant for performance which is oh, motivation yes. uh and um and our our um our our feeling the mood um if it is positive or negative um is also influenced by our, mo our motivational state. Uh, so positive emotions, if, if they are very intense, can also have a demotivating factor because we are very satisfied with how things are um, and we're happy with our performance and we kind of um, uh, actually invest less effort because um, it signals to us that, that everything is fine, that we don't have to invest more effort. So whereas negative emotions can have a, slight, um, a slightly uh, a motivating effect when, when we believe we're not there yet, but we can make it, then we will invest a lot of effort to actually reach this goal. Um, so, um, so then, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, um, it's, 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 it's a, emotions are very complex. <laughs> That's yeah. a good way of wrapping it up, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um and um and what we can do at the moment um with um with the methods that we have with um the, the state of research that we are in is to um um shed one particular light on on this mm. complexity and 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 say okay we're going to investigate this aspect and then we're going to see what we find and and maybe we have to rethink certain things um, for example, in interpreting, one important thing that this um, theory on, on positive emotions has never taken uh, into consideration or, or, or not, not, not much is cognitive load. Oh, yeah. How does cognitive load, which is very yes. relevant in interpreting, actually influence emotions? And this is why it is important to work with professionals, because cognitive load, that, there you come across cognitive load and, and in this particular task um, uh, uh, especially. So, um, so interpreting research raises new questions, or studying interpreting raises new questions, also with respect <laughs> to um, yes. to psychological theories. Yeah, and I think this is the thing: is that um, there used to be a myth around interpreting that if speakers would just slow down, it would make our job easier. Um, Oh, no, yeah, quite exactly. The quite the opposite. Sometimes. So um, I know that psychologists were struggling. To, so there was a couple of psychological myths that went around in interpreting. There was one myth that began that said, you know, the brain is basically a, a single channel processor, which turned out not to be true because interpreting is actually possible. Um, and then there was this myth that high speed would be a real issue because there would be too much information. And as far as I'm aware now, the state of play seems to be that we've found out the interpreters are very good at summarizing. Mm -hmm. And so a fast speaker you can deal with. But then I had a speaker who technically was giving me very low cognitive load because 
he was speaking even slower oh, than I am speaking <laughs> now. And the problem with that, it sounds like low cognitive load because you know how much information is your brain having to store. But in reality, it's high cognitive load because you're going, okay, I'm having to make him sound more interesting than he actually sounds because mm -hmm. I'm an interpreter. But on the other hand, I can't jump ahead of him because I don't think even he knows where he's going next. Oh, and to make it funnier, his entire thing, he was doing the metaphor of a train going very quickly along the tracks. <laughs> and part of me was like, that's not a high-speed train. That's an old, nearly dying diesel that you've got there, mate. And it's the, you know, even quantifying something like cognitive load and interpreting is not the easiest. And understanding what makes, hmm. you know, even if someone said what makes interpreting more difficult, we could throw them some answers, but very few of them have been positively proven. Yeah, and then you could get into the whole thing of, you know, uh, being challenged in a good way, being challenged in a, in a, in a bad way, and, you know, the, the whole sort of matrix between how good you are and, and how challenging the assignment is and all of that, which is highly interesting, but probably completely too much for this one, yeah. for this one episode, yeah. Um, now, what I'm wondering is, uh, although maybe you haven't answered all the questions that you've set out to answer in your research, Caroline. Um, I'm wondering if it's possible to leverage what you have learned so far to, you know, to use it in, in everyday practice. So is it possible to kind of influence one's own emotional state to improve performance, for example? One or is that a bit too much to ask? Um, no, no, that's, I think, what, what we're trying to do every day <laughs> to influence our emotional state and a state, and we should try to do it. I think yeah. one thing in general, um, uh, without having all the analysis uh, ready, is that emotional competences, uh, or maybe some people know it uh, under the concept of emotional intelligence, is something very important. And um, in, in the last years, um, more and more people become more and more aware of that. And studies show that it is a very important factor in, um, in, in, your, the, in your life satisfaction, but also in, prof in professional um, satisfaction and success. So what is emotional um, competence? In general, emotional competence is actually the way you're able to deal with your emotions. And as we know that emotions influence the way we um, we perform, uh, the way we interact, the way um, influences our relationships, um, mm. uh, these competences are very relevant. So um, especially one, once one competence is to regulate, being able to regulate emotions, and I'm sure um, you're, you're actually very good at that otherwise you probably would not be able to do uh, to, to do this job and stress is of course one emotional phenomena that um that that uh, you i think have to be able to regulate well in your job and you have to adjust to uh having techniques to regulate these emotions and to and being able to perform under mm. um under stress uh, so and and these are of course also techniques that you can train and that you may even refine or that you may um, um, bring more to consciousness um, to 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 um, uh, improve them. Um, that's one thing. Uh, then in communication, emotion uh, emotional competences are very important. Um, uh, being able to recognize uh, emotions, not only verbally but also non-verbally. 
I so think that's like also em empathy or uh, empathy. Um, empathy probably is the consequence of recognizing emotions. Recognizing emotions. Um, um, the first thing I, I would think of is, is the peer process of recognizing them through the face, through the voice, mm -hmm. uh, through gesture, through posture, being able to interpret um, an emotion that is communicated and also being able to interpret is this intentional or is it not, which right. also influences yeah. the decision. Is this something that actually will influence what I interpret? Um, uh, uh, that is part of emotional competences as well. Um, then uh, that may, yeah, expressing emotions, of course, that's, that is another uh, emotional competence, being able to express emotions. When we think of interpreting, being able to express them cross-culturally, mm -hmm. right? There are, there are differences, and there may be differences, and also differences in, um, in, in the norms that we have in expressing emotions. Then when you think of maybe dealing with clients, it, it can also be important to express emotions in a very um, constructive way. <laughs> um, uh, but that is these, these things are relevant in professional life as they are also in, in private life. And, um, and these competences, I think what we can say in general is that we, we should attach importance to those, to, to these competences in training as well as in professional, uh, in the profession and, and on an individual level. Yeah. Mm. And I think one more dimension, I think that comes to this, um, should we call it emotional skills? Maybe it's not because you mentioned the, the, um, the speaker base, basically where we have an emotional relationship when we work, when we interpret someone, you talked about the client as well, but I, I would probably also add, um, mm. booth mates, yeah, which can, yeah, I course. think we've covered yeah. this in earlier episodes that can be an emotional challenge as well, you know, dealing with booth mates, uh, both in a good and in a bad way, I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah, of course. I think yeah. also the, the really interesting thing from your subject and the way that you've described it is that there was a concern for a long time among, in some areas of interpreting research that the problem with the cognitive research was it was precisely treating interpreters like computers and we call it the conduit model where it's just, you know, language in, language out. It's really interesting with you talking about the importance of these emotional competencies and being able to recognize them, that that to me sounds a lot more realistic and a lot more like the interpreting I'm used to than this idea that, you know, it's just about your brain processing language. Um, I've mm -hmm. certainly had quite a few events where um, I've been interpreting or my boothmate's been interpreting and you've had to not so much manage emotion as recognize that it's there, and, and know how to deal with it. And there have been a, there was one occasion that I use a story all the time where I noticed that the people I was interpreting for were beginning to get really frustrated and annoyed with each other. And the question as an interpreter then is, well, what do you do when you recognize that? But I guess if we're not teaching interpreters that it's their job to see those things and to deal with those things, that they might just go, well, if they get annoyed at each other, I don't care as long as I, I still get paid. Um, the, the way that you're talking about interpreting seems to be a lot more emotionally intelligent and emotionally responsible as well. Um, that, that's how I imagine interpreting. And I think <laughs> also now <laughs> um, uh, with, with um, technology becoming um, a big topic, as, as I said in the beginning, I think this, this emotional intelligence is something that will definitely distinguish humans from from uh, from machines, um, still for uh, for quite a while, 
and um and, and that's yeah why why i think um uh, we should attach importance to them um also for ourselves because i think um thinking about them and seeing ourselves as emotional creatures um also helps us <laughs> dealing dealing um dealing with challenges yeah mm -hmm. are you thinking of things like um I don't know, vicarious trauma or things like that, when you mean dealing with um, stressful situations? Um, or is that not something that you're looking into? Well, just uh, may maybe on a, on a very um, um, uh, uh, yeah, mild and, 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 and simple level, I think if we don't see ourselves as computers, but as humans who have emotions and who may also be sometimes under the influence of their emotions that's what makes emotions so fascinating <laughs> yes. that uh, we can sometimes not regulate them and we cannot um uh really master them and they they have power over us um a lot of power sometimes but if we accept that um we may also um yeah i mean this idea of being a computer means you are working you are functioning you are performing come what may and if you don't this is a failure this is not how human beings function and this is not how they are and um i think with um through thinking about emotions also comes maybe a little bit of a more human and softer way of of dealing and more adaptive way also of of dealing with the way humans actually perform and the way they are made yeah <laughs> <laughs> now i'm glad you brought up the whole uh the whole technology thing, but because I was a bit reluctant to bring it up, but but it was one of the topics that you discussed during this radio uh, panel that I mentioned earlier. Um, so you said that uh, the these emotional skills, I guess, uh, would still differentiate humans from machines, which is an interesting thought because um, basically one thing I've taken away from this from this discussion is that um, we maybe we don't really know all that much. <laughs> about how emotions work and, and how, you know, emotions and interpreting interact and so on and so forth. But still, as humans, we seem to have an intuitive grasp. At least most people <laughs> seem to be intuitively capable of sensing emotions, of being, you know, showing empathy towards other people um, and letting influence, uh, letting emotions influence how they interpret as well as what you mentioned just a few minutes ago. So uh, it, I, I guess the takeaway probably is and correct me if i'm wrong is that even if we don't really understand the whole emotional side of interpreting at least not to a hundred percent we can still know that it's the advantage we have over machines because i mean some machines are now able to i think interpret facial expressions um but they they still it seems to me they still don't get the whole picture of these different input channels. So the, the visual and, um, the, the audio channel as well, because humans can hear, you know, sometimes, um, emotions just through auditory input. If, if I'm making any sense at all. Exactly. Often emotions actually are decisive in the way the, the emotional content that you perceive is decisive in the mm -hmm. way you interpret yeah. um, a message. And, um, and this is, this is something, yeah, that 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 humans um, can do. Um, as you say, you have this multimodal input actually in communication. It does not only happen through the through the verbal mm. utterance, but um, it, it's a whole um, um, uh, a picture of, um, of of of, of nonverbal communication that is that is happening as well. And this machines can't do. And um, exactly, emotional competences. Uh, 
um, people have them to to a different extent, um, but Indeed. we all we all yeah, but we we all have them, and I'm mm -hmm. sure interpreters also refine them through the through their their job, mm -hmm. um, and um, and and they can grasp things in communication uh, through these skills, competences, or skills, or intelligence, whatever you you, you emotional intelligence, whatever yeah. you may call it. Um, they can grasp things that uh, machines can't, but that are um, extremely important. We would not be able to communicate if we would not be able to interpret emotional information that comes with the um, the language. E emotions are, are very, very important for us to be able to to, to understand the, the full meaning of of a conversation. Couldn't agree more. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't agree more. I also think it's it's a really it's a much wider perspective on language than you hear from the machine translation experts or the machine interpreting marketing people. Um, that awareness that you know human communication is not just the words that are spoken. I think it's, it's the point that I think everyone came to agree on in this discussion of whether humans would be replaced by machines was. The fact that we've not really scratched the surface on what is going on when you're making meaning and even how is meaning made is a massively open question. Does your experimental work cause you to reflect on the, the emotions that you deal with as a researcher and even as a human being as well? No, actually, I just think of the data. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so as an experimenter, of course, you try to be as neutral as possible, um, which is which is difficult uh, often, especially when you have very nice subjects. <laughs> um, and, and they start talking to you and you start talking to them and you think, oh, <laughs> this is uh, the wrong the emotional direction. Yeah. So um, in, indeed, that as, as soon as you are part of the experiment, of course, you also influence it and you have to mention it and, um, and consider it also uh, when you interpret uh, or, or try to make sense of, of the data you, um, you, uh, you find. But then... Um, uh, you would of course try to set up experiments where your influence is is minimized so that people sit in front of a screen and the whole experiment actually happens through a computer program that is always the same because mm. it does not have emotions <laughs> and does not interact yeah. um so that that would be one idea if you have to be if you ha if you are interacting with the people as i did for example when i did the study with the interpreters then this is indeed um an issue and then of course and you probably know that when you're doing as you've done research yourself or as you're doing yeah. research you know that when you do research you go through a lot of emotions <laughs> this um starts, that's, just, yeah. that's just that's just called one supervision meeting <laughs> yeah yeah it's um it's a it's a very emotional process doing research so um it's uh but it's even then um uh you uh, um it, it may help to to be aware of emotional competence and maybe also sometimes just to know that it's normal um and um and that these emotions are are normal and that you just have to accept them and let them let them pass <laughs> I must admit, it reminds me a lot of the episode that we did with Justine Mason yeah. on mental health. Me too. Um, it, it's saying some of the same things, but from a different angle. She was very keen on the fact that 
we are not machines, we are humans. And that we need to not, so there's a, I don't know if you're aware, there's a history in interpreting of the neutral, invisible, um, almost aloof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah conduit. Yeah. And then people turn around and say, this is very strange. Why do conference interpreters especially, they're yeah. the only ones who've dared to measure, yeah. why do they have such a high rate of emotional burnout? Yep. And you feel like saying, well, it's because you tried to make them into machines. Yes. Yep. Um, I know you probably didn't mean to, because very few researchers mean to, to do this, but it seems like your research is actually something that the profession need to think about and go, well, how far have we accepted the humanity of the interpreter? You know, do our, I know it's not your topic, but it'd be a question for interpreters, do our current codes of conduct allow interpreters to be humans? Does our commitment to neutrality and perfect accuracy, is that <laughs> realistic if we're going into emotional mm. settings? Well, the answer is, from your research, probably so not. Much, you know, yeah. expect yeah, expecting an interpreter to perform 100%. I, I heard from an interpreter once, and I think she said that in one day, she told a family that their grandfather was dying, dealt with a childhood leukemia case and then a miscarriage back to back. And then wondered why she couldn't go to work the next day. Yeah. That's why it is important to raise awareness <laughs> of emotions. That's yeah. exactly the, that's that's the thing. I mean, for decades we have defined professionalism as being exactly that. You just perform, you function, um, whatever has happened to you. Mm. Um, but that's just not how human beings are. And yeah, um, and I think the more we become aware of this, um, I mean, we still need to. In, in professional work, we still need to expect a certain performance and a certain um, um, a certain code of conduct and, and and goals and so on. But the more we we um, the more emotions become something that um, we integrate into our way of mm. seeing human beings and seeing professionals. The more we will, the better we. I think the better we will understand such mm -hmm. such situations and um, I, I'm perfectly aware of this debate from from the past um, but I think in especially with respect to the future where we have to where we have these machines as, as something we have to kind of have a dialogue with or at least with the people who <laughs> who um, who uh, um, who are interested in them and who, who build them and make them more intelligent and so on mm. Um, the, um, the debate um, with respect to emotions will, will not only be um, do human beings have emotions, but why do their emotions make them irreplaceable or, or un, how do you say, yeah, why, why do they make them so, um, so special? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So not, not emotions being something that actually prevents you from, from doing something, but emotions being the assets. I, I love this because interpreters have been called special many, many times. Special but the meaning of the word special seems to change every time. Well, that's not only true for interpreters. That's that's true for translators as well. That's also true for other people mm. who were um, in, in other domains, I think. It makes me wonder whether if we were to look at deal, uh, dealing with emotions and managing emotions, whether there would be a difference between interpreters who are because of their work in emotional situations every time they do their job and translators who tend to work on their own i'm not saying that translators don't feel emotion but i just wonder if the way of dealing with emotional stimuli and the response to it and its effect might be different between certainly translators who've been doing their job for 25 years 
and interpreters who've been doing their job for 25 years. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things, the interesting things we could study, how, how our emotions, how, how are they different uh, in the translation process and, and in the interpreting process. On the one hand, um, it seems to be obvious that it's interpreting maybe more emotional because you have this direct conversation. Um, uh, the emotions of the conversation partners go through you, right? Um, um, on the other hand, one observation that I had in the booth is that um, your, your job is so fast. <laughs> you're so highly concentrated and you're so much trying to, uh, it has to be so, um, yet so quick sometimes with the content that um, it, the question is how, um, how much space, how much space does the cognitive load leave actually for emotions? Um, that could be, that could be, um, the, uh, another aspect, but um, this remains to be yeah examined further. <laughs> and speaking of which, um, to sort of kind of slowly wrap up at this, I, I wanted to know what's what's coming next for you because um, you have I think described a few. I don't know what the phrase is in in English. I think a few future av- avenues for future research. Um, so I'm wondering what it means for you personally, Caroline. What what are you? As far as I understand, you're still in the process of uh, running the study, or uh, analyzing it. So what's what's next for um, you? Basically, analyzing it. Yeah. yeah. And uh, to analyze it, I um I will have to uh, I will go back to London to my lab and um <laughs> and uh, uh, and discuss it with them because uh, statistics are not that easy for a language person. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, so that's probably what I will do during the summer and then we'll see what the data tell us, um, <laughs> and what, um, uh, and, and if there are any interesting, um, uh, uh things to, um, to examine in more detail, right. or if we actually decide maybe, uh, emotions and interpreting, um, uh, should be studied differently. Right. That's uh, maybe we did not um, choose the right approach to studying it. Um, that that could also be a possibility. Um, mm. And uh, but so yeah, it very much depends uh, on on the data. But one thing I def on on for for this study on 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 positive emotions and an abstractness, the processing of abstract concepts. But um, one thing I um, I absolutely want to work on further is to uh, develop. Um, uh, yeah, the training of emotional competences yeah. targeted more to our professions uh, because there are already existing um, quite a lot of um, uh, training programs that are really, really targeted to particular professions. And there may be also um, a few um, already, but I think we could maybe um, create synergies to, to raise awareness and to make these um, knowledge about these things more, um, knowledge about emotional intelligence, about emotional, emotional competences more um, available yeah. um, to, to um, interpreters and also to translators and, and to um, increase their awareness and maybe also to help them perform well in their job and maybe also be um, be happy. <laughs> um, that would be also a, a good thing. <laughs> um, and, and that's something I, I would very much like to work on. And we have already started to um, to work on a concept here. Yeah, so that's something I will work on as well in the next month. Well, it sounds like there's almost uh, another follow-up episode uh, in there. It sounds like a lot of material. <laughs> 
But great. Um, I hope so. <laughs> I, will, I will let you know. <laughs> great. Well, it's been fantastic um, to talk to you, Caroline. And uh, I'd like to thank you thank very you. much for, for sharing your, uh, you know, your, uh, your experience and your, and your research and also your enthusiasm for the, for the topic today. So uh, good luck with the rest of the study, of course. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for the invitation. It was yeah. a pleasure to talk to you. And thanks for accepting me. <laughs> yeah, it was a real pleasure for um, us. community. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, we hope that listeners will also find it as interesting as we did. I'm quite sure they will, actually. And this has been episode 24 of the Troublesome Turps. Now, just a few housekeeping remarks. Once again, if you want to join the conversation, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on our website, which is at troubleturps.com, where you can also leave comments for individual episodes. We're looking forward to that. Uh, and of course, you can find us on social media. Twitter, we're at TroubleTurps, and we're also on Facebook, facebook.com slash TroubleTurps. You can find our all podcast episodes on YouTube as well, if you're more of a visual person. You can listen to the beautiful audiograms that we upload there. And, of course, uh, our regular reminder that we have a live event coming up in November. And I hope by the time this episode is live, you will be able to buy tickets, if any tickets are still available, because the number is limited. Uh, more information about that can be found on our social media and also on troubleturps.com slash live. And that's it for today. Have a good evening and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, I was explaining on Twitter that I'm thinking of adding pirate to my interpreting languages because I heard it would make a really good sea language. But um,